This week in Retronauts, it's a Retronauts holiday. everyone and welcome to whatever episode of Retronauts this is. I don't think we're keeping count anymore because we just record them in batches in bulk. Uh, it's like the Costco of podcasts and then we dole them out as we see fit. So this is a mystery episode appearing at some point in the future, but now it's your present. And I'm Jeremy Parrish and I don't know <laughs> what's going on anymore. Uh, why don't we cut to the people who are here in the studio with me who bring, maybe can bring some Order to my chaos. Across from me, there's... Uh, this is Bob Mackey. I prefer to think of us as the Sam's Club of podcasts because I'm from the East Coast. Okay, but, yeah. but Sam's Club is related to Walmart. And oh, Walmart no. <laughs> okay, well... They're we... going to drive all the other podcasts out of business. I'd like to do that. Drive That'd... down wages. It's terrible. Our patron has nowhere to go but up. As a union fanatic, I feel, Bob, that you would not want to be the Sam's Club of podcasts. <laughs> I'm also greedy, though, privately. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll stop talking. Uh, over in the corner... The most popular retronaut, but also the rarest. Mm, yes, just like a Pokemon, huh? Yep, you're like the Mew of po- Yeah, shiny Ray Barnhold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. And I guess I'm most like Costco, Washington, born and bred. <laughs> you are the Kirkland brand Yo, podcast. Yeah, that too. I'm going to stop making analogies. Ray, Ray is Finally, shiny, but I think it's because we're all kind of sweaty already. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, our guest for this episode. Hi. Hey, this is uh, Gary Butterfield. I prefer myself doing kind of a Walgreens character. Uh, okay. Um, I didn't get a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more expensive than it <laughs> little, should be. Little, but, a little classy. But when the airline loses your luggage, uh, you've got underwear for us. I got your teeth covered. All right. Well, awesome. I think that's just nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a sight gag. That doesn't work on a podcast, no, but goddamn, that was funny. Um, Gary, where are you from? I Not am... like locationally, I mean. <laughs> well, originally, starting my story in Aurora, Illinois, in 1980. A young boy with dreams in his heart. I'm, I'm going to put in like banjo music over this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I guess you're a no, too. Now yeah. you know the rest of the story. Uh, I'm from the uh, Watch Out for Fireballs podcast, with most interest to uh, Retronauts listeners, and several other podcasts on the DuckFeed.tv network. Slumming it here on Retronauts. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. It is, it is my honor and privilege. Hmm. We'll see about that. We may make you eat those words. Anyway, um, this episode I'm hosting for some reason, uh, but really it's it's more a Ray's episode, I think. Um, this episode comes to us by request of someone who is known only as Chase. He doesn't have a last name. Maybe Chase is what we're supposed to do the bank? to find out more about him. Could be, yeah. could be. Uh, but it's his request bank. was the history of and our histories with slow life simulation games. And... I can't think of anyone on the planet better suited to talk about slow life simulation games than Ray Barthold, mm-hmm. uh, who went to Japan on a fundraiser and created an entire magazine about a game almost no Americans have ever heard of in that genre called Boku no Natsuyasume. And um, yeah, I mean, I think all of us here are just kind of infants sitting at your feet as you dole out wisdom to us in the coming hour, hour and a half. So I hope that's not too much pressure, right? Well, I mean, I don't know how true that is either. <laughs> I think there's plenty of games to talk about uh, for all of us. Because, you know, we also did the Harvest Moon episode. And true. That's, yeah, very, that's true. Very close cousin. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, it is on my list here that yeah. I've made. Um, so. 
but but yeah, that's that's more almost kind of an edge case, I think, to yeah. what what Chase was referring to specifically. Mm. Um, but you know, we can we can argue about this batter back and forth like a kitten True. Uh, playing True. with yarn all day long. Yeah, I don't know. Should we just jump right into it and start talking about it? Sure. I'm down for that. Okay. So, you know, as with all backer requests, and yes, this is a Kickstarter backer request. We're still kind of clearing out the backlog of these. We have just a few more to go um, before all of our requests are fulfilled. So here's this one. Uh, as with all backer requests, the, the actual topic is a little bit nebulous and a little bit left to our own discretion and determination. So I've put together a list, basically, uh, kind of a chronology and evolution of, of slow life games. And I, I think there's some disagreement about the list I put together, which hopefully will make the podcast interesting and not result in <laughs> fisticuffs being exchanged. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at um, the way the, the style of game has evolved over the past 30 years since uh, Little Computer People, uh, PC game from 1985. So I guess you could consider this like the 30th anniversary edition of the slow life game genre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it is settled. Yeah. Believe it or not, it's 1985 was 30 years ago. Jeez. Every day I think of that and <laughs> just feel kind of sad. That's okay. I barely have memories of 85. Once we get to like 2015, oh wait, 2020. <laughs> Anybody who says they remember 1985 wasn't really there. All right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it, yeah. yeah. Me and, me and uh, fifth grade at Studio 54. <laughs> I took the brown, I, whatever. I took the brown acid in preschool, and uh, <laughs> I forgot about that the whole the whole period. Yeah, Mr. Leary was a great teacher. Um, anyway, so why don't we just begin at the beginning? I'm sure that there are some some cases to be made for very early PC games that kind of dabbled into the uh, to the life simulation genre. Ray, I don't know if you are familiar with any of those. They're they're not really anything I looked into because yeah. they weren't. They weren't really fully formed. It was just kind of like a brain part of an idea that didn't find expression for a while. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I can't really think of many uh, good enough examples, basically. Uh, it was mostly just, you know, in those days, it was mostly about trying to uh, replicate the experience of Dungeons & Dragons. <clears throat> instead right. of doing that sort of, I mean, that's slow in a different way. And that's has its own storytelling attached to it. So I think people were more interested in that. And then... As simulations on computers were growing, it was more like technical things, SimCity-type stuff, and things that were actually more involved than just, you know, a humanistic approach as the games we're going to talk about. Yeah, I would, I would say maybe the earliest attempt to kind of create a, a, another person within a computer system would be something like Eliza, mm-hmm. which wasn't a game. It was just like a, kind of like a programming experiment. Can you create... A, a, a computer intelligence that can convince people that it's having a conversation with them. But, you know, that, that is kind of like the basis of where we're starting here, where, you know, where you look at something like Animal Crossing and you're in a town full of little imaginary people, um, they're, they're all kind of reading from basic scripts, but they have so much text, um, and it's all written sort of in a random, goofy, whimsical way, so it doesn't necessarily show the seams quite as much as... as it might otherwise. Yeah. Um, 
I, I can definitely draw a line between something like Eliza and the more contemporary version of this genre. Yeah, there were some cheekier things. I think uh, the game was called uh, School Days. It was for the Spectrum. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. It yeah. Was, was where you just played like this delinquent teenager. <laughs> Everyone says that was the basically the prototype for Bully, mm-hmm. essentially. Not not right. literally, but spiritually. Right, yes. the inspiration, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's things like that as well. I, I admit I have not spent much time with these old computer simulations because, I mean... Who did really? Like <laughs> they, they, they're. I think they're interesting. Um, uh, people who were very history. much. People who very much remember nineteen eighty five. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, those liars. Um, no, I, I think. I think you know, they're they're kind of important as footnotes, like efforts that people made. But I don't know that any of them were ever necessarily huge hits. It was more like you know, um, oh crap, what was that? Lucas Arts uh, early MMO. Habitat? Habitat, yeah. Mm. yeah. Like things that weren't really fully realized and didn't really do anything, but it's important that they were there because yeah. they were laying the groundwork for all right. this. And that's important also just because of the network elements. That's been right. uh, recently revived. And, and little computer people obviously have a huge influence on The Sims, mm-hmm. which is you know best-selling PC game of all time. One of the games that kind of came out around uh, this time that is a little bit of a gray area for this that I did spend a lot of time with is uh, Alter Ego. Mm-hmm. Ooh, tell us more. I, I actually don't. Um, there's actually a really pretty decent iOS port if you want to check it out. Um, and it is a simulation um, from the zygote stage to old age of a, a person all done in text hmm. uh, presented through choices. Like you have stats, there is this kind of simulation aspect. And it doesn't have the, the second person-ness that a lot of these games do where you're kind of controlling the other. Like it is a little bit more RPG. Um, but it is just really, mu- it has that mundanity. So the same way, you know, you're on summer vacation one of your friends wants to go throw rocks at a wasp nest. What do you do? And then how do you kind of handle this? So it does have that kind of uh, low stakes feel. I get it. It's like the boyhood game, right? It, it, it is like the boyhood game. <laughs> I keep like checking a boy back. Contest. Yeah, it is, it is, it is not. That. But you, you can end up and and I I haven't explored you know any any large percentage of the endings and, and ways you can end up in that game. I spent a lot of time with that. Would you Would you report your friend for throwing rocks at wasps because it's illegal to kill an animal? Now that all animals are almost extinct. Yeah. Well, they yeah. weren't real wasps. They were mechanical wasps. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Simulated. All right. Yeah, boy had dreams of electric wasps. <laughs> yeah, so, so back to Little Computer People. It's, it's notable in part because the designer of it was David Crane, who had made his name with games like Pitfall and um, later with a boy in his blob. Maybe not quite so much. Um, but it, would, it, was, it was not so much of a game and more of like, of a, um, like a computer-based aquarium almost, where you basically loaded it up and it created this little cutaway dollhouse style and you had a little person inside and he just kind of did things. You didn't really have much opportunity to interact with him or to control his life. And unless I'm mistaken, but I've, you know, I've watched videos of it. It doesn't seem like there's really any interactivity to it. It's more just a, a novelty. Like, you know, back when, when computers were still in their infancy in the eighties, people were like, what do you use it for? I guess to make, to file recipes or something <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, so here was another thing you could do. You could create a, an imaginary aquarium kind of life. A little Tamagotchi like. Yeah. But and, and you can make Tamagotchi. Yeah, absolutely. But like it was, a, it was kind of a pet and you could, you could make suggestions to it, but not, uh, it didn't have to follow them, hmm. which is something that comes up later with in this uh, chronology. You know? Yeah, so I mean, again, like we, like someone said, very influential on games like The Sims, but uh, only, only moderately a video game. Um, 
Something that I put on my list, and uh, I think Ray takes issue with, came the next year, 1986, <laughs> uh, for Famicom. It's a game called Bird Week. Right. And it's not really one of these games, but to me it does kind of create a, a spiritual bridge between the concept of, you know, like an arcade game where you're uh, controlling things and there are hazards and you're trying to get a high score and more of like the virtual pet sort of experience or a simulation where uh, it's really more about kind of creating this, this in, you know, uh, imaginary virtual life. And Bird Week was a, a game where you controlled a bird and you're, you were like a mother bird and you had to fly around and pick up food and take it back to your children and feed them and avoid predators. Um, but it was it just, like, if you've gone back and played it, it feels different than other Famicom games of the era. It's not, it's not a platformer, for one thing, which makes it different. It's not a, you know, a text-based adventure game or graphical adventure uh, it's not an RPG. It's not a sports game. It, it's in its own kind of little niche. It, like, I guess maybe the closest antecedent I can think of in terms of how it plays is Defender, where mm-hmm. you know yeah. you're, you're you're flying and you're you know, in this kind of like looping, scrolling world, and you have to go collect things and avoid hazards. But it you know like the 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 whole presentation of it is very different than Defender. It's not science fiction. It's very like you know National Audubon Society or something. Um, so it, it kind of sits in this weird place in between. Like it, it's video game designers attempting to create an experience that is more simulation-like, but you know, like like so many console games of this era, not quite where it needed to be. Like very sort of rudimentary. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, that that is a good perspective on it. Uh, but uh, I always kind of viewed it as kind of this uh, mediocre arcade-ish game. Mm time because it was just it was a bit it didn't seem like it was fully evolved but of course you know like a lot of bad games there are out there and i use air quotes even though i just didn't use them right now (laughs) you get a lot of good ideas that just don't really are realized that well it kind of reminds me of uh, Odell Lake, which I think we talked about on the edutainment or the MECC episode. Where oh, I wasn't here for that one. Oh, oh, you weren't? Okay. No. Uh, well, you play as, you choose the fish to play as, and you have to eat the smaller fish and avoid the bigger fish and avoid like other hazards like fish hooks and things like that. But it felt it feels a lot like Bird Week in the terms of like you played as a, like a cycle, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So I don't think it's close enough, but it very, it's very much yeah. similar to that. I remember us mentioning that, but. I'm sure there's a lot of edutainment games that we just don't know about or just fell off the face of the earth after the Apple II died, you know, that Mm -hmm. are about simulation, but... Right. Yeah, and, you know, if if you look at this sort of um, kind of what Bird Week did, you can see descendants a lot in in games like EDO, the Quest for Eden, Mm -hmm. or the Search for Eden uh, versus Mm -hmm. for Super Nintendo... Super Nintendo... uh, um, Super Nintendo Chalmers. Super Nintendo. (laughs) uh, That's like every grandparent in the 80s. (laughs) right i love my nintendo games um yeah like these these games that were much more kind of rooted in uh, other genres but still attempted to go into that simulation vibe i I guess you know that's more what bird week um propagated Mm -hmm. but but i still think it's interesting to look at as just kind of like a, a side note because it's just a you know 80s game design in general you see all these games where people we're trying to figure out what video games were and how they worked. They were exactly. still laying down the rules for exactly. everything. I mean, yeah. 1985, 86 was when this was. I mean, we'd only just seen Super Mario Brothers, Ultima 4. Like, 
Dragon Quest was coming out around that time, The Legend of Zelda. Um, you know, it, it, it was all just kind of the, the Wild West and people were mashing together ideas. And like a lot of uh, Famicom games of that era that never came to the U.S., it wasn't very good. It feels very raw. It was um, kind of amateurish. Uh, definitely a descendant of the bad third-party Atari 2600 games. But, um, you know, within those crappy games, you still find some interesting ideas that people just didn't have the the know-how or maybe just the guiding examples to realize quite as well as they should have. Um, so, so there's a lot of creativity in that, in that period. Anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. No. I mean, Bird Week, um, yeah, interesting, maybe not important, but but... A novelty. Definitely. I mean, you plucked that out where I didn't, so mm-hmm. more power to you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the big me. thing, I mean, again, not to keep us too far on that, but the interesting thing, because I'd never seen Bird Week before I was looking through the notes for this, and for a video game, um, your goal in that is to take care of your kids, mm-hmm. um, which right. is interesting in and of itself. Like, that's not, that doesn't fall in line with kind of traditional, you know, power fantasy games where you're committing violence or uh, just kind of abstractly racking up points. Like, you're taking care of your kids. It's an altruistic game. In that case, I think Puyan belongs on this list. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a big Puyan fan. Maybe. Yeah, that too. That circles in my head too when I think of that. Um, also worth worth mentioning is the fact that um, this is kind of going back to little computer people, but in 1987, uh, a, a sort of remake of the game showed up in Japan for Famicom Disk System, I think, uh, called Apple Town Monogatari, which means Apple Town Story, um, published by Square Enix or just SquareSoft's um, Disk Original Group, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was basically a cuter, friendlier, more Japanese style of uh, take on, on little computer people. But interesting because it, it took that computer experience and brought it over to a console system. Uh, and therefore, maybe worth mentioning on, on that front. Um, but it, also in 1987, uh, I have another game that um, kind of shows a different branch of the life simulation game, and that's uh, Nakayama Miho no Tokimeki High School, um, which kind of was the, the beginning of the whole dating sim hmm. genre, so far as I know, are there are there dating sims that go back before that? I mean, there's like no, some nothing. weird kind of porny games that Enix made. And I'm thinking of like right all those microcomputer games. Yeah, not as much dating in those, really. Yeah, uh, but as far as like the way we think of it now, yeah, I think Nintendo kind of planted the seed or part of it there. Uh, but yeah, that's just that's that's first of all, it's just a plain adventure game, really. Um, it's kind of like. Famicom Detective Club without all the murders and stuff, but uh, it stars uh, uh, Miho Nakayama, who was a famous uh, idol back then, singer, actress, and, uh, you know, back when uh, <clears throat> those sorts of uh, entertainers were not 100-member girl groups, <laughs> they Nintendo, of all people, decided to feature her in this game. Well, not just Nintendo, but Nintendo and Square. Like, this is a yeah. game that represents a collaboration between the creator of Final Fantasy and the creator of Metroid. Hmm. That's Kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it's Hironobu Sakaguchi and uh, Yoshio Sakamoto. Okay. Oh, wow. So, For some reason, I did not know that at all. But yeah, it was it was a collaborative effort. Okay. It's pretty crazy. I guess that was 
I guess that was discovered after I started playing it or whatever. Uh, but yeah, this is just uh, the story of it is just where you're this kid in high school and he runs into Miho Nakayama, or rather this new girl in school who looks a lot like her, but actually secretly is. And then, oh man, Hannah Montana ripped this <laughs> off completely. Yeah. Was, wasn't this the game where you could like call a phone number and hear... A real phone number, yeah. Yeah, and it would be like recordings from, from her. And yeah. Then, yeah. So, so there was that element, that kind of like multimedia, hey kids, ask your parents before you call kind of thing. So, Perhaps, yes. Yeah, so um, obviously like I, I think the, the, the progeny of this would be the Tokimeki Memorial series. I, I don't know right. what the connection there is. I've, I've never really been able to figure that out. I haven't admittedly looked that deeply into it. Yeah, not a ton. Just mostly that sort of high school setting and just trying to, uh, you know, uh, build this relationship with the girl, right? Um, but, but the the Tokimeki name, like, what is that exactly? Oh, you want me to look it up? <laughs> you, you don't know off, off the top of your head, like, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I haven't really, like, as far as I can tell, the Tokimeki Memorial series is independent of Tokimeki High School, right? But there's that just name in common, yeah. But it's it's not a Japanese like, word, is it? Is it like a is it onomatopoeia? Yeah, that's oh okay. The romanization of the Japanese term, which can mean excitement or heartbeat. So it is related to Doki Doki. And I forgot that Igarashi wrote the script for that game. Uh, for one of them, yeah. Uh, I have the first one. Oh, okay, the first yeah, one. PC yeah, PC Engine that was, game. That was kind of where he started. And, oh, the like, one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Koji Igarashi was, was working on that, and then he was kind of looking over his shoulder at people working on Dracula X, and was like, oh, oh yeah. I want to work on that. Can I play test it? And then got himself into a position running the, the series. That's how you do it. That's how you do it, yes. So, um, so yeah, actually looking up the name Tokimeki, there's a lot of stuff in Japan that has had the word Tokimeki in it. So it, I guess it's just kind of, I wouldn't say a coincidence, probably Konami was like, oh, there was that one game that used this term and it's not really trademarked, so we can kind of riff on that right. a little bit. And I, yeah, and it is used a lot in those sorts of high school settings, romantic type of things, in the way that we use heartthrob, although not exactly, but it's, uh, it's the definition's almost the same. Yeah, so so that's the 80s in simulation games. Is there anything else that you can think of before you know the 1990s that is worth mentioning? Nothing I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. So it's off the table. Uh, so I guess we're only counting uh, slow life. It's just like it's down to the human level or like the singular entity level because like SimCity, yeah. things like that, I guess, are off SimLife. Yeah, I mean, SimCity is it, it works almost, you know, it's on that sort of large scale. So it to me, it's more like a, uh, a strategy simulation okay. game almost. I mean, you're not, you know, going to battle with it, but you are still making these macro level decisions. Right. Um, I assumed it was just like you are you are controlling a, a thing or a family or not like a unit, not just like a a whole city or a landscape or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking here at um, everything that I've put onto the list, and it is really much more about sort of following an individual or getting that sort of in close view of of individuals or units or characters or okay, people. Okay, cool with that. Yeah. So, um, so I guess that's. That's where we're going to go with this. Hmm. Um, anyway, so so looking into the '90s, um, something I, I noticed as I was putting the, the sort of doing the research for this and putting the list of, of important titles together is that um, this this style of game kind of goes in waves. And what I found was that in the early '90s, 
it all kind of went to that second person style. It's almost like a, you know, like a Lucas Arts or um, uh, Sierra Adventure, where you have like a character who you're moving around. But in this case, it's not so much about actually controlling them as kind of nudging them and guiding them and seeing how they react. Hmm. So in the, in the 90s, the, the big games that sort of uh, defined the genre uh, in, in order of release were um, Princess Maker in 1991, Pac-Man 2 in 1992, <laughs> oh, good. Wonder Project J in 1994, Pets in 95, and Creatures in 1996. Um, and all of those are very hands-off. Like, you don't control your characters directly. It's very much about sort of interacting with the world around them to a limited degree and seeing how they look at that and respond to it. I guess Princess Maker is a little more of a, of a traditional kind of uh, interaction game. There is the, the sort of direct interaction with the, the princess. But uh, the other games are much more about sort of like you remove yourself and then it's almost like a... Like, I don't know. I, I guess you can kind of see the results of that in something like Ghost Trick, hmm. where you're, you're you're kind of affecting the environment in a ghost-like manner, like a poltergeist, and seeing what that causes the characters in the game to do. Well, in Pac-Man too, I think you're you're just an angry god, mm-hmm. yeah, just there to like torture that. Pac-Man <laughs> and his family. Pretty much. Yeah, Pac-Man Two is a weird one because I really have no idea why they called it Pac-Man Two in the U.S. In Japan, it was just called Hello Pac-Man. I like that better. Yeah, less of that, less baggage attached yeah. to it. <laughs> But but for some reason when they localized it they were like this this is it this is the <laughs> the right. true successor <laughs> well, to the great arcade hit it was the nineties and things were constantly being reinvented with sunglasses and skateboards and dinosaurs and stuff so yeah, I guess so I guess it's the equivalent of a reboot these days yeah it's like it was the Yo Yogi of its time wait there <laughs> was a Yo Yogi of its time there were, there were the new monkeys yeah um, God I don't know what else Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I guess that wasn't a sequel, but a prequel. But. Yeah, certainly Pac-Man was not as hot in the 90s as he was, and uh, they really branched out into weird things like that, and Pac-In-Time as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't... Pac-In-Time was more like a traditional adventure game, right? Uh, no, it was a platformer. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, it seemed like I, pre-rendered I never played that one. bounced around yeah. a lot, I think, in that right. game. It's, uh, the original was based on a totally different uh, European computer game mm. that I forget the name of, but... Yeah, so Princess Maker, uh, that was designed in part by Gainax, the animation studio, uh-huh. um, which is interesting because, um, I don't know, you just don't really see animation studios having that direct input on, into uh, to a video game style. But it, 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 I don't know, like it kind of seems appropriate given the direction that Gainax is... Uh, merchandising went with like Evangelion type stuff like that that's been a huge part of of the Evangelion uh, fandom and and multimedia blitz over the past two decades and stuff where you can like have a have an imaginary girlfriend or buy a little figurine of Rei Ayanami or blah 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 there was a girlfriend of steel wasn't there right yes um yeah you dated some girl who wasn't even in the television series yeah 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 they dip into games every once in a while, and when they do, it's kind of weird. Yeah, there's... Um, when they did. Yeah, the idea behind Princess Maker was you, I guess, adopted a daughter um, and trained her up to be a proper young lady or a prostitute if you did it badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I feel like if a woman wants to choose to be a prostitute in her life, that is her, her yeah. right as a woman. 
Yeah, by choice. That's right. No moralizing here. I've yeah. se- I've seen I've seen let's plays of this, and I, I've seen ones where you take the girl down the route, she becomes like a dominatrix, and like she's like mean. I like that. And you can also not, not personally, not, not as a preference, but <laughs> no, I know that's that's that's. Great. I did marry the mean girl in Dragon Quest Five, so <laughs> think of that while you will. Uh, me too. There are, there are also more kind of martial things too. Like I think that in one of the later mm-hmm. entries, you can she can turn into a dance assassin, mm. like a dancer. That's crazy. An assassin. Does yeah, she keep like little daggers in her stocking or something? Presumably. Okay, yes. I would hope so. It's basically, you know, I'm sure the designers of that game are just like, well, what kind of jobs would I want in Final Fantasy? Well, <laughs> well I mean, there's there's pretty no much limits. there's pretty much a dancer assassin in um, Dragon Quest IV with right. uh, Maya and Minya. Oh yeah, that's right. So it's not that that much of a stretch. Um, yeah, I I actually don't have that much to say about Princess Maker. That was always more Scott Sharkey's thing. He, <laughs> I could I could written, see that. He's, yeah, he's pretty much written the definitive English language treatise on uh, Princess Maker. Not a very serious treatise, but nice. but nevertheless the most uh, enlightening tale of the game. Would that still be on the web? Um, I I actually don't know. Yeah. His, his sites are up and down. Check the way back. Yes. Um, but Pac Man Two is is more much more of that sort of. Um, Again, like I said, you're sort of manipulating the environment around Pac-Man. So, but you can also affect Pac-Man directly, mm-hmm. and, um, and mostly, mostly just to make him angry or sad. Right. You can turn him into a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> by by the end no of one. Yeah. Just keep whacking him, and he just he, he just goes insane. He really he, he does not turn into the lovable Pac-Man that we all know and love. Yeah. Not the one we see in Smash Brothers in today that's for sure I mean, he's so jolly in that one i but. do like making him the equivalent the equivalent of whatever that game is uh is drunk in that game right. like you eat like berries or a mushroom or something and it's just like pac-man is tripping and he just interacts with things in the most insane this like, ways this is like pac-man as like a retired football player just, <laughs> <sending his> <laughs> <laughs> just like his, his frontal lobe is dissolving in his skull right. you're giving him concussions but it's just not good the family's t- being torn apart he's on uh, the quest for something he doesn't know what the hell going on <laughs> no, now I can't have fun with this game anymore Ray <laughs> it's so tragic now why call it Pac-Man 2 well there's your answer it is the next chapter <laughs> the thing is Pac-Man was in a coma the whole time yeah. he dreamed it all took a dark turn just saying <laughs> so on a happier note um there was wonder project j a couple of years later right and mm-hmm. that was that was more in the princess maker vein but but also kind of in the pac-man 2 vein it was like sort of the midpoint between the yeah. two um it's a pinocchio story yeah and that was for super famicom right 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 right. Yeah. right and then there was a sequel for nintendo 64 launched at the very beginning of the n64's life in japan wonder project j2 and that made the important choice uh, that was kind of presaged uh, the direction that Japanese games and anime would take in the coming years of changing the male protagonist to a girl. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so now it becomes this kind of like dollhouse, virtual daughter, maybe a little bit on the skeevy side kind of thing. Um, but it had very nice animation. Like it looked beautiful. Really, yeah. really great looking game. Um, I'm, are these games you've ever played? I've, I've wanted to like I've always been fascinated by these games but there's it's such trouble to definitely try play to, a game like this yeah they're very dialogue heavy mm-hmm. um I believe there are fan translations 
but I've so far just admired it from afar. Uh, yeah. Ever since I saw it in like EGM or something. I do want to play them eventually. Like you teach the the little boy just the most basic lessons about morality and um, you know how to follow your commands and things like that. It's very it's a very 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 slow game, but uh, right. it looks like it's lots of fun if you put time into it. So I really want to play it sometime. <laughs> and it is translated as Ray said. Yeah, and um, both of these games were developed by Enix. Um, so it's it's interesting that the uh, Japanese developers we've talked about most so far have been Square and Enix. That seems to be yeah. Uh, Maybe just a coincidence. I don't know, but but maybe signs of a natural convergence that was that was eventually coming. Although I don't know. I guess you know, Enix always kind of worked in that um, RPG adventure simulation mold. Um, even before they they hit it big with Dragon Quest yeah. and uh, the Protopia serial murder case, they had some of those uh, skeevy PC games that I was talking about, like uh, Lolita Syndrome. I think. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few of those that if you kind of dig through their, their distant past that no one ever really talks about or looks at. Yeah. Kind of like, what were you guys doing? <laughs> what was going on? I, I'm, I'm going to blow. Oh. I just said, I, I can't think of what could be gross about Lolita Syndrome. Can we treat it? I'm sure it's about reading the book and, and <laughs> analyzing it. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll blow your mind and let you know that the same developer of Evo also developed the Wonder Project Gay game. Wonder Project Gay, no, Wonder Project J games. Mm-hmm. And that is Almanic or Almonic. Okay. you say it? Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Here it is right on the uh, page. How about that? Boy, people are going to have a, a field day when we're actually looking at Wikipedia <laughs> on the show. I knew That's it. right. <laughs> I knew these assholes just read Wikipedia pages at us. Oh, I lost my place. <laughs> References. No, personally speaking, um, I would have to say that Wonder Project J2 was my first real exposure or awareness of this genre not that i played it but you know um around the time the super nes launched or sorry the <clears throat> the n64 launched was when I, when I really started to take an interest in the games media or games press and follow magazines really closely i mean you know egm and game fan had been publishing import outlooks for a lot longer than that but that was the point at which i sort of said wait a minute there's all this stuff happening over in Japan that I never really paid attention to because it just never occurred to me that there was life outside of America. But but yes, there's all these games coming, and uh, or not coming to the U.S. as the case may be. And that was one that really fascinated me. I guess because you know the the artwork, the animation in it did look really nice, and it just seemed like such a different game. It had this uh, young female protagonist with like crazy what the hell were those things? Like these gigantic plastic clips in her hair. It was just very oh, unusual. Yeah. 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 Really oversized. That barrettes. was around the time I was starting to really take an interest in anime. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I can see this is, you know, like an anime video game. That's interesting. I wonder what it's like. Um, so, you know, I started reading about it and just kind of following it. <clears throat> and, you know, at this point, uh, 2d hand-drawn video games were basically, I mean, they were being ushered out the door very quickly. And so it stood out because here was this sort of holdout against the trends of the industry. And even though I loved, you know, moving into 3D with Super Mario, uh, Super Mario 64, Tomb Raider, you know, games like that, I never really kind of let go of that, that fondness for hand-drawn animation and classic sprite art. And so that was one that really stuck out to me. And, and it's, it's one of those that I really would like to play someday, even if it's not very good, just because it... it I don't know, something about it resonated with me. And it wasn't because I wanted to have my own little 
puppet daughter or anything like that. It was uh, it was much more of an artistic and, and visual connection, just um, something that stood out so differently from from everything else that was being published at the time. Really piqued my interest. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm pretty much in the same boat. Oh yeah, yeah, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're great looking games. Yeah, so we'll have to look up the uh, fan translations on those someday. In the meantime, in the West, we were getting games that were a little less... Uh, how, how would you define these games? A little less um, innocent and whimsical and a little more like kind of within the, uh, the trends of Western animation at the time. Pets and creatures that were kind of ugly, hmm. to be completely honest. Like the Pets games... Which which continued to live on through Ubisoft's Pets games, right? Right. Like, that's like the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Like they were very very ugly. At the there time. were a bunch of horrifying little orbs like mushed together, like to make a creature. I mean, the ones I played, there were no like polygonal, you know, characters. It was just like these these sprite orbs that were just kind of undulating around each other to form like a dog or a cat. Anyone else ever see this happen? Or yeah, did I dream like, it? It was like. Um, animation courtesy of Microsoft Paint. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was like they used a spray paint tool to make like a cat or something. Right, and then Creatures was uh, all kind of pre-rendered, trying to sort of look like Gremlins and Furby while still not being so yeah. obvious that it was, you know, actionable in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but definitely, um, I think you control little creatures called the Norns. Um, is that right? Sounds right. I've, I've never actually played it, but I looked it up. There were like alien creatures, and this was very much in the, the Pac-Man 2 style of uh, hands-off video games. Like, you really didn't control them. Right. They had their own lives and wandered around, and you could you could choose to, you know, click on one of the creatures. This was the first one I ever actually played. Um, I guess around the time Wonder Project 2, J2 started uh, getting press. Uh, I was also playing a lot of Mac games, and this was one games that came to Mac in that year. <laughs> so uh, I checked it out, and it didn't really do anything for me, partially because I was so grossed out by the art. But but it was interesting. Um, yeah, and so so you could follow these creatures around, and you could choose which one to follow. There were predators within the world. Uh, they could, you know, mate and have children and have future generations. So it was very ambitious, and it, I, I think it was actually pretty well done, but it just didn't really click for me. At that point, did you guys ever mess with creatures at all? I did, just sort of a passing curiosity. I ended up buying it and not really getting into it because I didn't totally understand it. Yeah, maybe a bit too ugly for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting, and I know it definitely sold enough to make like two more or something. So it it was actually. I think they made more than two more. I think there's like an entire series where. It, like, tells the saga of the oh, creatures as they leave their planet. <laughs> okay. I was, I was reading about it last night, and I was like, wow. Wow, I, I didn't realize there was such a deep mythos. It's like, yeah, it's like who now? <laughs> somewhere between virtual pet and battlefield Earth. It's right. really crazy. It's like Neopets, too. <laughs> it's like, oh, we have to make some lore. So there, are, they still, are they still making these games? I don't think they're still making them. I've, I haven't seen anything about okay. creatures in a long time. I, I'm sure it would have popped up on the radar at some point. I figured there'd be like creatures, awakenings, origins, <laughs> beginnings. I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they're going to reboot it soon. Yeah.
Oh yeah, actually, you know, talking about creatures um, reminded me of a game that I didn't put on our list because I just remembered it. Um, but it was a game that I really wanted to play back at the time, but it wasn't on Macintosh because who the hell would publish for Macintosh in the 90s? Uh, it was a PC game called Galapagos. I don't know if you guys remember that. I have heard of it. I've it was, never heard of it. It was actually um, more of a structured like 3D puzzle environmental navigation game but it still kind of fell into the simulation mold. It looked really fascinating. It was, um, you controlled this like sort of spider-like creature, except you didn't control it. You, you guided it, you nudged it, you gave it suggestions on how to navigate the world. Um, but it was like this 3D polygonal creature called Mendel. And um, basically it had to learn, its, learn how to navigate the environment. So it was like half puzzle game, half AI simulation. It looked really, really fascinating. I mean, it was... Definitely one of those early, like, 1995-96 vintage PC 3D games. So yeah. pretty primitive. Uh, I don't think it probably would hold up that well. But it always just looked really fascinating to me. It looked much more interesting than Creatures, which was just kind of like, here's here's your Furby just hanging out yeah. in a dollhouse. Right. Like, this <laughs> this took that concept and ran with it. Um, I didn't know about Pac-Man 2 at the time. But it, it was much more, you know, even a, a more elaborate kind of puzzle game than that. I think the the navigating 3D space um, was 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 a big part of that because the creature had to learn sort of like what works and what didn't. It actually kind of reminds me of um, that AI experiment that I was reading about recently with Super Mario World, where you could like teach Mario good, bad, like collect coins. It makes you happy, and basically teach Mario to play the game. Mm. I'm sure you saw that, Ray. Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, um, but you know, again, in a 3D space, which is pretty complicated like it, it was a very ambitious game at the time i don't think it reviewed very well because everyone said this is a cool concept but it's not a lot of fun but you know if, if it had shut up on mac i i absolutely would have played it it looked really interesting right but anyway um so that was that was kind of the the hands-off style um moving into the the late 90s um it, it seems like the the slow life simulation game genre uh, started to kind of take a more direct approach. Uh, it kind of backed away from the like God simulation uh, and more of the RPG type style game, even if it didn't necessarily have RPG mechanics. I guess it kind of reminds me of that, um, you know, that that connection in part because of games like Harvest Moon, which definitely are kind of uh, cut from the same cloth as RPGs, uh, but also just because there is that sort of like sense of controlling someone in an adventure in a world uh, at a much slower pace than an action game. Um, but the, uh, the first of these uh, was Aquanauts Holiday. Um, Ray, I assume this is one you know about. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is uh, was this an art dink game? Yes. Uh, was it Arika? No, art dink. Art dink. Okay. Absolutely. And of course, yeah, I also made a magazine about them. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I definitely know a bit of two about that. Um, so would you like to fill us in? Sure. Well, there, there was a whole series of these, wasn't there? There's three of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was That's a whole series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first was, well, <clears throat> the first of all, it was designed by Kazutoshi Ida, who went on to do Doshin the Giant, hmm. uh, Tale of the Sun, which I'm sure we'll also talk about. Yeah, I didn't put Doshin on the uh, list, but right. definitely like an edge case that I, mm-hmm. I considered. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is... It's kind of pointless, Aquanauts Holidays, the first one at least, because it's very much just about underwater exploration. And, uh, I mean, there is kind of a point. You can, uh, 
first of all, you, you find all these sea creatures, fish and whatnot. Um, but then you can sort of um, build this, uh, this, this, this giant coral reef however you want. There's like a subscreen where you can build this coral reef and stuff and sort of attract extra uh, this uh, sea life towards it. Uh, but otherwise, you're just really just exploring. It is just corresponding through this 3D uh, underwater area. Right. Um, well, this was 1995, and just the concept of moving around on your own yes. in 3D space, like that right there was a solid right. point. Like, yeah. Wow, this is crazy. It's yeah. like you're really underwater. You can swim around in any direction. Yeah, so it was a PlayStation game, especially that early on. It was a lot like, oh, this is like real-time 3D graphics for once. It's moving at a good clip, and wow, we're exploring this virtual world, essentially. And that, that, that was the pitch, and I think that's how a lot of people viewed it. Yeah, it was like the After Dark screensaver aquarium module, Yeah, but you could live it. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and I, I think the fact that the, the title is Aquanaut's Holiday kind of speaks to the intention. It's not about, you know, having a, a grand adventure or saving the world. It's about kind of your time off. Exactly. Like, exactly. You, you're an Aquanaut as your job, and this is just how you spend your free time. Mm-hmm. Are these games at all related to uh, Endless Ocean, that series, well, in any way? I mean, okay. they're conceptually similar, but uh, I think they're different developers, for one thing. I didn't know if, uh, if sorry, if Endless Ocean had more of a point to it, like if there was more of an objective. I thought so, yeah. Yeah, Endless Ocean and its predecessor, the Everblue series, both by Arika. Those, okay, that's why I was getting confused. Yeah, those have uh, more of a story to them, mm-hmm. more of a point, more of a, you know, more menus where you can see all the uh, creatures you research or collect or whatever. Um, and just a bit more, it's a bit more uh, obvious when you first play them, uh, but still really good. I mean, the Endless Ocean games are great. Um, I like them as well. But yeah, it kind of all started in that that particular sort of Japanese style sort of started in Aquanauts Holiday. Hmm. I mean, that, that that was kind of Arctic's stock and trade to right. a certain degree was like sort of casual, not casual, but relaxing. Um, simulations. I mean, they they did the A Train games, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, they also well they did do more humanistic sort of simulation games as well, like Tokyo, which is where you just uh, manage the space colony, and you manage all the. It's sort of like SimCity in the space colony in a way, but it's a bit more cartoony. Uh, but it is also based on more personal stuff, and that you get to you're you're like the mayor of the space colony, and you get to check in on people and see what they think of you. And it's not so much about building it as much as it is just managing your uh, your, your your rating, mm-hmm. <laughs> the people's uh, voice. Other stuff they've done uh, things set in like feudal Japan. Um, yeah, I mean, has, has has our Dink made? It's been a while since I've read your your issue so of scrolls, so I, I can't remember. Have they made more like traditional structured action type games, or is it always been just kind of like? not their interest, they just want to kind of stick to this other field. Yeah, a lot of that early stuff is pretty much all simulation-based or just things that were, you know, again, quote-unquote pointless. Um, they've made the Carnage Heart games, which are sort of action-ish, but again, it's yeah. about controlling AI control. Right, hmm. yeah, robots yeah. And, and that was, um, there was a PC series back in the 80s, I think, where you basically put together robots and let them fight. And I remember when um, Mega Man Battleship Challenge came out, for uh, Game Boy Advance, um, the few people who stood up for that game were like, "No, this is you know sort of a modern interpretation of that that mm-hmm. sort of like programming simulation game." Right. Uh, yeah. What else? They've also made. Uh, shoot. Oh yeah. Um, 
Nope, still lost it. <laughs> well, there was Tale of the Sun, which was kind of action-y. We, we sh- that, that, yes. That's, you yeah. know, so there's pretty much action on the it. list. Yeah. So let, let's talk about Tale of the Sun. Yeah, and that was another Eda game. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much one of the two, one, two big ones he made at Art Dink. And that is just where you take a, a caveman or cavewoman and just sort of, again, explore the land in search of, uh, or rather gathering parts to build a, a tower that leads to the sun. They do this by basically uh, killing mammoths, but you know you can't just run up to one and do it immediately. You need to build up and uh, get explore the world, build up your character, and then you know if uh, character should die, you can actually just go ahead and create a new one. So you have this other cave person who goes around the land and stuff. Kind um, of a little rogue legacy going on there. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Um, and yeah, you, uh, again, it's mostly a lot of beating up monsters mm. and collecting their their flesh or what have you, and just having that go either to uh, building your character strength or, again, if you actually find the tusks, then they're contributed to the, to the tower. But it, it has, you know, like, um, health and stamina mechanics, right? Like, yeah. you, as you're roaming around, you need to eat and mm-hmm. sleep, otherwise your character Yeah, you kind of sleep dead. automatically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, if, you, if it turns night, your character will just completely collapse and possibly slide around the ground just snoring. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, if you wake them up too early, then they'll just kind of get sleep deprived and sort of, you know, arbitrarily fall asleep when you don't want them to. Um, so, I mean, you have to manage that as well. Um, yeah, I mean... This, it, this it, sounds it, a but, lot like uh, Cubivore, though Cubivore is a little true. more yeah, uh, Cubivore, I, I, thoughtfully designed. When I saw Cubivore, like, it definitely kind of struck me as being Tale of the Sun-ish. Yeah. It's a lot more gamey, though. Yeah. Right, yeah, the other thing, uh, sorry, the point I was struggling to make was that the Tale of the Sun doesn't really have a HUD or anything. Mm-hmm. It has maybe like one menu, but, it, you know, in a map. No, it, I mean, not even an obvious map. I mean, you kind of have to look look at the instruction manual even to really understand what you're doing. And then after that, just sort of, you know, poke your way around, feel, send those feelers out, and then just keep going back and forth, back and forth. So, I mean, uh, you mentioned Rogue Legacy. It's not exactly a roguelike because it's kind of this free-roaming mm-hmm. 3D game. But it does have that sort of element of you know dying and restarting, but sort of keeping your base progress right. as you go along. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's very interesting that way. It is also a little bit cartoony. Of course. That's that's one of those I really regret not having played because at the time it came out, that was when I was first starting to get into PlayStation and reading reviews about games. And you know, I read reviews that were just like, "This game is stupid and boring, and why would anyone make a game like this?" And I was still at that point in my life where I was like, "Well, if a review says it." It must be true. Yeah. There's nothing for me to discover right. in this game beyond what is said in a review. Unless, of course, I was reading a review, a negative review of a game I'd already played and liked, which mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, oh, this guy's stupid. Yeah. Um, so I never really thought to give it a look. But in, in later years, you know, as my tastes have matured and I've taken more of an interest in, in games that aren't necessarily like an obvious hit or you know, maybe intuitive in their design, uh, it, it's something I've, I've really wanted to play and I really wish it would come out on like PSN or something so yeah. I could replay it or right. or even I would love to see the concept revisited with more contemporary design standards not to change the core essence of the game just to make it maybe a little more easy on the eyes and maybe put in some kind of world map or something so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're building this tower yeah but but the concept seems really interesting because it's just so like go for it yeah and it's not it's not really about evolution like you mm. would think a lot of these prehistoric based games would have something to do with evolving your clan or whatnot. And it sort of is, but it's really just like, Oh, I just need to collect these things and 
get to the tail of the sun. <laughs> we were we were cheated when BC was canceled for Xbox. Yeah, no kidding. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, Sony was smart enough to publish that and it's Aquanauts Holiday over here. But I mean, yeah, there were a lot of reviewers who just didn't get it because no one was really around to really guide them towards what the point was. Weren't those part of their sort of early push to create or to publish less expensive games in the U.S. along with Bushido Blade, Rapper the Rapper? I don't know what the reasoning was, really, but uh, they, they did it. Yeah, it was before Parappa as well. I got really no, I just, I just remember, you know, like yeah. at that point, game prices were going up and up. You know, Super NES games mm-hmm. were sixty, then seventy dollars. Uh, N sixty four games launched at seventy, then eighty. Um, there were a bunch of Genesis games that were like ninety, hundred dollars if they had the chips in them. Oh, and, I see. Yeah, yeah, Sony was. I, you know, Sony started out at sixty bucks, and then once N sixty four launched, they were like. Well, you know what? Maybe we could make our games fifty bucks, and maybe we could have these other games that are a little simpler, or maybe you know less commercial, like Parappa or whatever. We could sell those for forty. I, th- mm-hmm. I think these games were part of, like, Tale of the Sun was part of that that mm-hmm. push. I could be wrong. I don't remember. I think Aquanauts Holiday predates uh, predates that that move, but I think I think Tale of the Sun might have been one of those games. But in any case, yeah. it was definitely like you said, Sony was smart enough to publish it here. I think that was. Um, one of their sort of mission statement games. Like, oh yeah, we are publishing games that you can't find on any other system. They may not be your cup of tea, but look, mm-hmm. like, you're not going to find this on N64 or Saturn. Like, there's crazy stuff on PlayStation. You can get the big hits, but you can also get this crazy little stuff. Why wouldn't you want a PlayStation? And that was that was a compelling argument to me. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. Um, so yeah, those are two great games as well. And the third Aquanauts Holiday, which was on PS3 does have more of a story to it, a little bit more of a point, but it is still also just kind of a nice uh, exploration game. Did that come out here? No. Uh, I didn't think so. It's badly translated in English in Asia. Oh. <laughs> that doesn't help me. Yeah. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Sort of. So those were all just PS1 games, right? The first two. Oh, the first two. The, second the, was... third, the third was on PS3. Oh, oh, oh sorry. I yeah. farted in my brain like, there. Released like 10 years later. Okay. Missed that. <laughs> All right. As as a reminder, like refresh my memory, what happened to our, our Dink? They're still around. Are they? Okay. Yeah. They just really slowed down their input output. Um, like the PlayStation really helped them out a lot. They made a lot of games for that, but after the you know the PS2 and stuff, they sort of just went back to focusing on A Train games on PC and mm-hmm. such. I thought so. Then they started a, a side company just for doing like contract work for other companies. So they made a lot of anime games. Then they just recently folded that company into company. Now Art Dink is half A Train, half you know Dragon Ball and whatever. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. So so next we come to a big one for some people, for a few people, a handful of people. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those games that like Earthbound has a huge following, a very <laughs> loyal people. And Ray, I think you're a pretty big fan of it too. Sure. Yeah, um, you can count me in this. I am, but I've never played it. But I want to play it so bad. And uh, the game in question is Moon Remix RPG uh, by Love Delic, right? Uh, developed by them, yeah. Yeah, originally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I admit, I don't really know that much about this game aside from the the sort of high level view, like cool claymation graphics and <clears throat> sort of low key action. But I mean, this game has. A very loyal following, even even uh, among Americans or Westerners who have had to play the game in Japanese because it was never localized officially. Um, 
But I'm going to let you take it away from here right? well, because this I, is way beyond my, my pay grade. Well, it's almost beyond mine <laughs> uh, because I, it's been a while since I've really tried it or uh, read about it much. But, you know, I can give you the, the basic setup of it, which is that uh, you play this uh, kid basically playing, playing an RPG, just this generic, generic super parody type RPG. It's a bit of a game as well. And you uh, basically get sucked into the world, and you find out that the the knight, the main hero, has sort of gone mad and is sort of you know, ransacking the, this this fantasy world. Uh, but although you've entered this world, you're invisible, so nobody can really see you. They can kind of hear you. So whoever you know does see you, um, some old lady or something, she gives you just this you know these, these clothes, and so you're just like this invisible man walking around with these. Elvish sort of uh, clothes, um, and then uh, if I remember correctly, and again I'm not totally up on this as much as I was, but you uh, explore this land and you meet all these crazy characters, and you sort of uh, learn about their plights and stuff, and you can do these little fetch quests for them and sort of build build the whole uh, love of the world, build this this level of love in the fantasy world, and just sort of use that as the the weapon as perhaps. Against this, uh, this this rogue sort of uh, hero, like Ghostbusters too. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, a little bit quieter. <laughs> um, uh, so it's like that. Uh, yeah, kind of claymationy graphics, but also yeah, great backgrounds as well. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, Love to Leak, who had a lot of people who'd go on to make um, Tulip, uh, the Chibi Robo games, uh, Shining Soul, Contact on DS. So a lot of key people there, especially Akira uh, Ueda, who was really the main guy behind uh, all that great art style. Uh, so you can sort of tell when he's he's working on the game, uh, like Moon. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very 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 interesting game. Of course, um, another sort of Love the League trademark was you know characters who speak in sort of gibberish, speaking this weird gibberish voice. Uh, although you can read they're speaking plain language, but they all have weird crazy mashup hmm. voices as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game also has like a weird soundtrack system. It's like a custom soundtrack, sort of. You collect these uh, moon discs, which are basically mini discs with different songs on them, and you can do that to build a custom soundtrack, basically. A lot of crazy music on there. Uh, they released like a three disc set after, many years after the game was out, which is pretty rare, but also just like, really, really interesting, as far from a game music standpoint. Uh, but yeah, it is very interesting. From what I've read, the translation is nearly done. Though that could mean it like could be a year out. Yeah, in, in fan translation, in fan, tra- yeah. in fan translation terms, that could be like next year. But yeah, the last five percent of a fan translation is usually where it takes the most years. Yeah, yeah bug testing and all that yeah. stuff. So there are, uh, yeah, a lot of fans did uh, pop up over here once people started to find out about it more. Um, uh, I believe uh, Tom Lipschultz from Exceed is a big prom- proponent of it as well. Hmm. Uh, he one of the earlier people who discovered it, and so you know, there's people who know a little bit more about it who can articulate it better than I could. Please leave comments in our Retronauts blog to tell us why we're stupid for not knowing more about the game. <laughs> <laughs> but it is kind of, kind of, kind of an important game, I think, because it does. At first, it's sort of like a satire of RPG stuff, but it is actually a lot more mm-hmm. than the surface. It's um, it's a game that I've wanted to play, but you know, the language barrier just seems too insurmountable. Um, and I actually have a copy of it. It's it's one of those things. Um, Chris Kohler was over and he interviewed um, the director. I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was like, hey, would you like for him to sign you a copy of that? And I said, oh, 
okay, sure. I don't know the game, but why not? So he brought it, and then he was like, yeah, that'll be 40 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I thought you just had a copy. Around. Okay, thanks. Uh, so they also, after the moon, they made a game called UFO, A Day in the Life, which mm-hmm. is even probably more closer to, to what we're talking about than moon is. Uh, very much sort of, uh, I think you take care of an alien, or you are an alien, you're just sort of like exploring this, these uh, urban areas. Sort of learning about that. There's that game as well. Yeah, they, the, those were those were some crazy guys. <laughs> but they did some great games. Yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, most of their games have never made it to the U.S. Right. Contact did. I know Tulip was. Did Tulip make it over? Yes. No, it was Giftpia that did. Yeah, make it right, over. right. I confuse those all the time as yeah, well. Yeah, a few other games that yeah, did not come out. Yeah, and Giftpia was basically just like a uh, a fetch quest video game, like mm, pretty yeah. much combat free, but you were just like trading gifts with people. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like the the trading element of, of Animal Crossing, I suppose, right, yeah. which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the the last game to kind of round out the '90s probably might have had the most impact in terms of introducing the style of game to people. Uh, it was Hey You Pikachu for N64, and you know, just by <laughs> mm-hmm. by the very nature of being released at the height, the initial height, anyway, of Pokemon fan- fanaticism. Right. You could release anything, yeah. As long as that Pikachu. So here's yeah. a game that it came with a little attachment where you could actually speak to Pikachu. So it was kind of taking the, <laughs> you know, like the Hello Pac-Man thing and making it more literal, like Hello Pikachu. Someone should do a test to see if Pikachu is more responsive than Connect. <laughs> from, <laughs> Pikachu from 1998. Um, so it was it was very much in that sort of like you know virtual pet like here's a little dude on screen sort of interacting to you. It had more of a direct connection than something like. Pac-Man 2, uh, because, you know, Pikachu was, like, paying attention to you as you were speaking to him. But it was still very much in, like, the sort of, here's a virtual creature inhabiting your computer screen or your TV screen, and um, you're, you're sort of giving him directions and guidance, and based on his mood and uh, his whims, he may or may not kind of do what you want, and you just sort of see how it unfolds from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I admit I've never played this one either because I couldn't care less about having a living, breathing Pikachu talking to me. It's, it's kind of a I, game. It yeah. is, yeah. I really wanted to play it, but I felt bad enough being a closeted Pokemon fan in high school, so I, <laughs> right. I, I oh, couldn't God. drive yeah. it any further than that. I was walking around with one of those friggin' Pikachu virtual pets, just hiding it from people. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. no one must know my shame. Yeah, I, I played this... Um, the, the Walmart by my house was closing out all their N64 games, mm-hmm. and I bought this and Pokemon Snap for $10. Good deal. Yeah, it was a great deal. And uh, I played this for a couple minutes, and, and it's like Bryce said, it is, it is kind of a baby game. Like, the, the interactive elements and the kind of mini-games you do are, are really nonsense. And then I played Pokemon Snap, like, six times, <laughs> because that game is wonderful. Yeah. Not uh, for babies. No, it's a, no, it's for grown men yeah. like me. <laughs> I was nineteen. Absolutely. Speaking yeah. of it being a baby game, it, it actually shipped uh, later with an N sixty four console designed to look like Pikachu. That when you turned uh, it on, yeah. its its cheeks would light up. Yeah. And when I worked at a game store, we had like so many of those just piled up in the back oh, because yeah. no one bought oh, them. Oh yeah, I saw um, those all the time. Just piles of them. So it looked like a play school, like my first game I would, cartridge. I would love set. to get one of those things RGB modded. <laughs> that could be like my professional video game. Capture setup. <laughs> I'd like one and get like make make like Pikachu like dark evil Pikachu like paint paint them all cool and, and rad looking. But I'm not gonna do that ever. 
Someone do that for me. Yeah. Make him really Merry Christmas, Bob. Yeah. I want to make like him like you. Yeah, that's what you mean. Now I want to make him like them. dark, uh, dark timeline Pikachu. Like after the war, he's yeah, got like an eye patch. Mirror and, uh, universe Pikachu. Exactly. Like yeah. Pac-Man two, Pac-Man. <laughs> he's got all these like skull alcoholic. I just want him like a bandolier of skulls around his shoulder. Like these are my trophies. These are my Marowak friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're. Never mind. I'm not gonna get into it. It's <laughs> yeah, nerdy. Not their skull. No, I know. I know where you're going. It's nerdy. I know where you're going to. Yeah. Okay. If you know where Jeremy's so, going, send a self-addressed damn envelope to Retronauts. <laughs> we'll send you a prize. It's a little bit of self-esteem. So that's the 90s. Now let's move on to the aughts, or the, the, the new millennium. And as it happens, the, uh, the, the slow life genre pretty much exploded in the year 2000. I mean, you can say a lot about the year 2000, but this was the year that having a village of imaginary people became the thing. Yeah. Our computers crashed and became unworkable, but by God, the ones that we could get to work again had little people in a town on them. So there are five really major initial releases in, in the genre, all from the year 2000. Some of these were Japan only, but um, but they're all kind of um, this critical mass arriving all at once. And those games were Animal Forest, uh, Animal Forest or Animal Crossing, uh, the original N64 version, The Sims, Dokodemu Isho, Rumania 203, and of course Boku no Natsu Yasumi. Um, all of them take a different approach to slow life gaming, but all of them, I think, are pretty seminal works. And uh, maybe aside from uh, Romania 203, have, have kind of lived on with uh, sequels and just, you know, positive fan regard. Uh, they tend to be looked at back at very fondly. Uh, obviously, Sims is the biggest one. Would it? Yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah. The the best selling PC game ever, you said, Gary? Yeah, at at a time it was. I don't know if that's still true, but that was a statistic around a couple years ago. So, so, I mean, Animal Crossing cumulatively probably has sales approaching The Sims, I would think. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, each, that's that's pretty much the one of the top five best selling games on every Nintendo platform. And now that it's been on, what, five platforms? No, four platforms. Uh, Five if you count in 64. Yeah, right. Um, that, that's a lot of that's a lot of cheddar. There's never any fatigue with that series too, because there's like four years between every game right. instead of like The Sims, where it's like this is our Katy Perry pack. It's, it's so crazy whatever. because I mean, Animal Crossing is the one I can talk about the most, and we'll we'll talk about it later. But um, it's it's really weird because every time one comes out, I think eh, I don't really want this. I'm, I've done Animal Crossing, um, and sometimes that's true. But then and the next one comes out, and I'm like, yes. Into mm-hmm. my veins directly, please. Like I, I pretty much can skip the console ones, but then the, the portable ones, which are like every eight years, every ten years, uh, those I don't know. Those those really do it for me somehow, and I get really addicted for like three or four months. It's kind it of it works really well on a portable system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, that's I never got really into the the GameCube one, um, which was the first one I played. But the uh, the first DS one, I put tons and tons of hours into, just because I could play it on my terms, and and since it's a game that. Uh, guilt you when you don't check in on it. Oh, God. Um, being able to check in on it when I was on the bus or, 
you know, on a break at work was really important as opposed to having to set a set aside evening time, you know, that I could be spending with my loved ones and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, consuming different kinds of art, uh, would, you know, really helped me kind of get through it. And, this, and spend a lot of time. this might sound like a complaint, but it isn't. I, I played the GameCube one and I got totally burned out on it. I think I played it for maybe like three or four months solid every day, you know, a few hours every day. And now when I go back to it, it's just like, oh, this is the experience I had. I know a lot has changed with each edition, but it feels like in the game's favor, they got so much right with that first game. There's really nowhere else to take it except to recreate or, or start from scratch again because so much is right with that N64 game that we never got. Right. Ray, you look like you're about to say something. No, no, I mean, no. I mean, you're kind of right. But. I'm not. I'm not dismissing the fact that they've improved a lot. They've yeah. added some stuff. They've made multiplayer happen. I mean, it, there are some different things, but the game essentially is essentially the same experience. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, and actually, that's why I'm sort of fatigued on it. I mean, I stopped after the DS game. Yeah, me too. That's where I. That's where I yeah. cut the ties. Yeah, I skipped the Wii one, but um, when the when the 3DS one came out, I, I didn't expect to be pulled into it. I almost, if you if you look almost. at if you look at my coverage of the game on US Gamer, and I think one up before that. Um, before it launched, it was all like, do we really need this? And then after launch, it was like, oh my god, yes, we need this. Let me tell you about how wonderful cicadas are. I'll, I'll wax eloquent for 2,000 words about cicadas. Yeah, it's, it's a sickness. It, it's funny that you bring that up, Bob, because I feel uh, that The Sims is similar in that the basic gameplay and basic gameplay loop hasn't changed that much. Oh, for sure, I agree. Totally. And, the, uh, you know, and, and that's putting aside the endless cash and expansions of just like, you know, here are some different clothes. But even the, you know, the Sims 1 and the Sims 2, like it is in 3D, but you're still designing, you know, it's architecture mixed with like a career advancement simulator. Right, right. And even with the Sims, uh, Gary, like... Wait, are they, we talking about the Sims now? Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean I thought we were still talking about Animal Crossing. No, we can get no, to the... Uh, fine, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, even with the Sims, though, I feel like it's gotten too complicated where it's like, um, I'm okay with dealing with the demands of a house and, like, relationships, but once they want you to go outside of the house, it's just like, I have, I have no time for any of this. Like, <laughs> things are on fire, all my friends miss me, like, right, it, it's right. just like, there's too much going on outside the home. They try to overcomplicate things, but yeah. um, we can keep talking about Animal Crossing, I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, we, we can jump all over the place. Um, I've got a good Sim story, though, okay. whenever well, we have time. Well, yeah, let, let, let's go ahead and just talk about <laughs> Animal Crossing and finish that up, because it is, I think, sort of... Oh, for sure, yeah. ...for us the one that we've probably played the most collectively. I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know about Gary or... I, I play the Sims more of a collectively. Yeah. And, yeah, actually, um, we, we kind of skipped over Harvest Moon, but I feel like there's a line to be drawn between Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing because Harvest Moon took basically the RPG and said what if instead about what if instead of what if instead of being about killing stuff this were a game about leveling up by you know planting crops and yeah. and making friends and uh, you know doing chores and things like that so it, it's this kind of repetitive cyclical game it has you know the daily cycle and then the monthly cycle and then the annual cycle and it, it is all very much about kind of repetition uh, and sort of accomplishments in the long term. Um, and it's very, very low key, maybe in, in some respects, the sort of definitive slow life game, because it's very slow and it's very chore driven and very like you're doing the same things over and over again. And yet it's very satisfying when you get into that loop because things do start to happen and you do see accomplishments and you do feel like you've done something even though the process of getting there has been very grindy. And I feel like that's kind of you know where it gets the RPG hook because RPGs generally are about killing the same monsters over and over again 
and getting these incremental improvements, mm-hmm. making yourself stronger, getting better weapons. This is like that, except you're getting a better hoe or something like yeah. that. Or you're, you're, you know, right. marrying a wife. You get a nicer chicken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it does kind of adapt the, the, the sort of mechanics of a Japanese RPG into something that's much more low-key, much more real-world, I guess, much more approachable to the everyman or the everywoman, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. I know it has a huge female fan base. Um, Animal Crossing kind of, I feel, builds off of that. Um, the, the overall interface is very similar. It, it also reminds me, especially the original ones, uh, a little bit of The Legend of Zelda, where you have like uh, kind of a gridded world mm-hmm. where you move screen by screen from a top-down view. I always... When I played the the GameCube one, I really wanted a Zelda like a remake of Zelda in that Animal Crossing engine. Uh, I feel like it would have been a really fun, interesting oh, yeah. way I to can see how that works. Re- rework the original NES game. Yeah. I actually prefer Animal Crossing when it did have that you know screen by screen style. It was easier to keep track of things. At right. least yeah. for me, it was. Yeah. Um, so so it takes that and it kind of removes the uh, the farm element, the things that you're doing repetitively tend to be more kind of, um, I guess it's more about self-starting. Like, do you want to water your flowers every day? Do you want to gather fruit? Do you want to go sell stuff at the market? Um, With the ultimate goal of paying off a house, uh, a mortgage that keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, But that's really kind of the the macro goal. And if you never pay off your house, then so be it. You're just like every other American and you're in debt forever. (laughs) Um, so, you know, it, it does have this kind of daily cycle to it, and there are events based on the real-world calendar or similar to the real-world real world calendar. But um, it, it's definitely a game that is sort of about setting your own goals, and, you know, you have a lot of opportunities for interactivity within the town. You have lots of villagers who live with you, and the better you take care of your town and the more friends you make in town, the more we'll move in. So there's kind of this escalating uh, potential for busy work and activities as, as the game advances. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very satisfying, I guess, because you can just kind of do things your own way. Um, unless, of course, you're not someone who wants to do that, in which case it's very unsatisfying because there's no over goal, there's nothing to really work toward besides paying off your mortgage, or, like, I want every uh, flower in my town to be a, you know, a black violet or something. Yeah, but there's a, a heavy element of collection and then kind of fashion to it. Yeah. You know, like you you want to make your avatar look cute or the way that you want to. And then, or I want to collect all of the, the this theming for my house. Um, and then when I got to that, I would pursue that for a time in the game. And that's always around when I lost interest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sorry, I, I, the, the kind of treadmill of uh, paying off my house, you know, kept me engaged. And then once I got through that and it was, you know, Collecting things for the local museum, I kind of lost it. Mm-hmm. But it, it is kind of a interesting. I think one of the things that uh, these games have in common is that that lack of a an end goal, um, which lends itself to this um, kind of emergent gameplay, too. Like changing all the flowers in your town or creating designs um, in your gardens or something like that uh, is is really kind of a part and parcel of this genre. Yeah, I think what, what kind of sets Animal Crossing apart from other games, and maybe this is just Nintendo retconning it a little bit, but they claim that the, the series has always been about communication. Um, you know, that, that's pretty obvious now when it's so networked and, you know, there's the dream world and you can go online and do things like that. But even in the original, the idea was for you to play sort of asymmetrically with people who shared your console. Yeah, that's right. Messages for them. 
And occasionally you see these poignant stories online about people whose maybe their father has died or mother or something, and they go in and they boot up their mother's Animal Crossing town and find all these notes that their mother left for them. Um, you know, little little stories like this kind of emerge from from Animal Crossing, and I guess it's it's one of those games where it is about sort of emergent gameplay, this kind of living, evolving world where you can take part in it or not, uh, but it's going to keep happening around you, and, and it's kind of you know what you get out of the game is what you put into it. <laughs> Any other thoughts on Animal Crossing? I want them to remake it from scratch so I can play it again. <laughs> I have a feeling they won't, though, but uh, why don't they appeal to my taste specifically? I'm a consumer. Yeah. I have rights. <laughs> right. You're a gamer. Why do they hate you? I know. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so I, I, think, I think Animal Crossing makes an interesting contrast to the other big uh, slow-life game of 2000, which was The Sims. Um, something that I didn't really play that much of because it never clicked with me the way Animal Crossing did. Mm. And I don't know if that's because it wasn't cute enough or just because I didn't feel like the direct connection between my character or characters that I did in, uh, in Animal Crossing. You know, the fact that you control your character directly in Animal Crossing as opposed to just sort of uh, clicking the world around them. Like queuing up uh, kind of makes tasks. A difference to yeah. Me. Yeah. 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 Also, probably the fact that there's no... Uh, English language in it as well. So Animal Crossing has that element of, you know, even though they speak in that kind of gibberish, you know, there's text and you get this personality of people throughout your town and there's a layer of obfuscation in The Sims. Like the characters do have different personalities, uh, but you have to work a little bit harder to see it. And because they are so abstract, they're a little bit simpler. I found like, you know, every once in a while there'd be some kind of bonkers piece of, of accidental poetry that an Animal Crossing character would say. I was like, that's beautiful, and you don't even know it, you know? And uh, that never happens in The Sims. Like, it was just like, oh, this person, you know, likes to talk about airplanes, but hates to talk about work, yeah. you know? And that, that was... <laughs> that's that's what the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> this, this guy, you know, always has to use the bathroom. That's yeah. his defining personality Yeah, I guess, I guess um, maybe that's kind of the difference between the two games, is Animal Crossing is very much a console game, and mm-hmm. The Sims is very much a PC game. Like, you build everything in The Sims on your own, Whereas in, in Animal Crossing, it's more like you kind of uh, tweak this existing template that's set up for you. Uh, and I guess I, I am more drawn to that style. Like, I, I don't want to have to do all the hard work myself. Yeah, and, and the opposite side, um, part of the reason why The Sims has always appealed to me and I've always liked that series is that um, it's something that I really strongly associate with playing when I'm bummed out. Uh, mm-hmm. because it is a kind of a meritocracy simulator. Like, you can go into The Sims, <laughs> I'm going to build a house that looks the way I want it to be, and make a living doing whatever I want easily, that's, you know? That's exactly why it's hard for me to play. Like, uh, the last time I was unemployed and just at the depths of just being depressed and having nothing to do, I was like, I'll play The Sims. That'll that'll turn my mood around, oh, God, right? You were depressed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, I have so much time to kill, I'll play The Sims. <laughs> but when I started playing, I'm like, this is like an egalitarian meritocracy of a world that is not reflective at all of the real world. There's no, like, oh, your boss decided to hire his brother for your job, so now you don't have one. Or, like, you're just arbitrarily let go. Or this 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 inexplicable thing happened to you and you have no insurance. It, it, Those things aren't happening in The Sims. I don't want them to happen, but I was just like, 
I don't like the idea of like hard work paying off in this world when that's not happening to me right now. That's, you know that, what I mean? It's like I, I agree with you, and then was drawn to it for the for the I, exact same reason. I can like, see now, and I'm not making fun of this political mindset, but I can see now why, why Will Wright is a libertarian. I think. I mean, it feels like a very libertarian, like just world, like universe where it's like you 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 exist in this world, and if you do the proper things, you will advance up this ladder to the mm-hmm. top. And it's a very game designy kind of like logic, but I can see how it can reflect political ideology as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> my, my experience with The Sims was primarily indirect at the time that it came out and was kind of taking off. The girl I was dating uh, took a, a job with the JET program and went and lived in Japan. And so she started building this little Sim uh, version of us, kind of living together and, and you know having a little Sim life. And she would send me reports about stuff that was happening every few days. And then... Uh, she was like, "Oh, and I bought you this arcade machine. I found you know, like, or, you know, I found a place online where I could download a Galaga game for you." I was like, "Oh, that's cool. I love Galaga." And then she was like, "And then I got us a pad." So she got us a little guinea pig that she downloaded, and it turns out there was like some kind of weird virus oh, attached no. to the guinea pig, <laughs> and it would it could spread a disease to characters that would kill them. So then we both died because she bought this, or downloaded this guinea pig. And I was like, "Well." So much for that. Was your house just full of guinea pigs, like Tribbles, after <laughs> no, that point? It was just a guinea pig, but it, it, it somehow mm. carried diseases that the human soul could catch. I will say, I, I really enjoy building houses in that game. I, th- I think, like, Will Wright coming into it, that that's basically where he started, I think. Because, I mean, even right on Bungling Bay, it was like, let's let's build things. And it was less about the people than was the act of building. Right. And in the newest Sims, it's like, there are like 30 varieties of roofs. Uh, I, I, I know what one roof is. Yeah. I don't know what more than one roof is. Like, do you want a thatch? Do you want a tile? Do you want a this? Right. Do you want a that? Just like, uh. Probably all licensed by Lowe's. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> to download the ultimate bevel pack. Jesus. In order to... <laughs> The thing is, like, you never see the roof if you're playing the game because you're looking in through it, you know, at characters. So it just, they really get into the details about building houses in that game. Yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning that, uh, I mean, obviously, The Sims evolved out of SimCity. Uh, and the, the concept there was to take the sort of high-level macro game of The Sims and look into the life of the little people who are just basically statistics in The Sims. Or in, in SimCity, sorry. Mm-hmm. And kind of see what their life is like when they're not, you know, petitioning the government for better electricity or utilities or whatever, or hogging up the roads with traffic jams because you didn't build enough trains or so on and so forth. Um, and I, it wasn't the only attempt that they made to do that. There was also Simcopter, Streets of SimCity. Right. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of experimented with a lot of different versions. And I think SimCity, or The Sims, sorry, was the... Uh, the one that was sort of considered least likely to succeed. Uh, they, they tried all these other concepts. I know yeah, that, that. I, I mean, I, I've read in retrospectives that EA was like, or Maxis or whoever was calling the shots at that point. Was that EA at that point? Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah I think they own Maxis yeah, by then. Um, we're like, this isn't really a video game. You guys shouldn't do this. And they went ahead and did it oh. anyway. I don't know. Maybe that's apocryphal. But in any case, it's... it's um, the least video game like of all the the SimCity endeavors side projects, um, but but definitely the one that caught on the most, probably because it is the least video game like, so it appealed to a broader audience, and it, it is kind of the the evolution of the virtual aquarium of little computer people off Tomino Guitari, but much more. There's much more control over what happens, and of course, there's much more potential for abuse. You know, like trapping Sims and swimming pool or catching them on fire or whatever. Yeah. 
I think I think hearing about little computer people uh, when people talk about The Sims is like hearing about Doki Doki Panic when people talk about Mario Two. It just like um, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but I think that that came up a lot in reviews and in like coverage and stuff at the time. Like people were aware of oh, this yeah. and they were like they, they just wanted to be smart and like, hey, look, this thing exists too. Yeah. One of the interesting things about The Sims Two is that the uh, the original Sims is so not game like, and then that series branched off in a lot of ways to make it more game-like, to kind of appeal mm-hmm. to people. So all of the console and portable iterations, mm-hmm. like you had the Herbs and the oh Sims. Oh, my God. And, and it is the Sims. It's like a very similar engine, but just with a to-do list. Yeah, and those, yeah. stuff. And mm-hmm. those, none of those were fun. No, I, I had to review the Herbs when the DS first launched. And, uh, <laughs> man, that, that game was just like... I hate the Herbs. Ugh. It's like... Uh, I, don't, I don't even want to get into it. It's like that it generation's Crudes. Oh no! Get on your herbs. Herbs with a with a Z. The, the other games we should touch on for uh, 2000, Doko Demo Isho, which is mainly, I guess, at this point known for introducing the character Toro, the cat, and his uh, his negative counterpart, Kuro. Wasn't uh, he in PlayStation All-Stars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who gives a shit? Whatever it's he's called. Kind of, he's kind of Sony's <laughs> PlayStation mascot in Japan. He's That's my avatar on PSN for some reason. Well, there you go. I just thought it was cute. Um, it's... Yeah, Doko Demo Isho is, uh, it's also, I, I guess, was kind of pitched as a communication game because it was really right. about, like, having conversations with Toro. Uh, yeah. I didn't play it myself, but I'm, you know, kind of familiar with it just because <laughs> I thought, oh, what a great character. I really like him. Didn't he, wouldn't he, like, live in your pocket station and yes. you could, like, yes. feed him and walk around with yeah, him another, and stuff? Another thing that never came to the yeah. end. It's a pocket station game. Um, yeah, uh... Well, first of all, not just Toro, but he has other animal friends, right, like right. a robot as well. So you can yeah, choose there's like a frog character. and a bunny. Yeah. And... So it was very much uh, Sony's version of Tamagotchi, but also just leveraging the PlayStation. So you had this, you know, big, full-featured, nice graphics game, and then you could send the creature to your pocket station and keep managing them from there. Uh, but a lot of it is also like a, a language-based. Like uh, Toro will walk around and see stuff, and like, "What's that?" And you tell him what it is, and he's like, "Oh, yes, oh." Microwave, I love microwave, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and that's basically the point of that. And, uh, you know, because they're so cute and so, uh, gosh darn, affectionate and affectionate, and it's like, ah, it, it really blew up for them. Um, hmm. So they made sequels, of course, and uh, spin-offs. Yeah, they kept going. Man, we, you know, we keep mentioning Tamagotchi, but never actually talking about it. But right. I guess, I guess it's... it's not- it's it's kind of tangentially related. Like, yeah, it's important because of, of the impact I guess it had. But it was you know just that little LCD keychain with a little creature living in it. It was extremely simple. You fed it, you cleaned up its poop. Yeah, and it would eventually that's, die. That's all the life stuff. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> that's all the slow life stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty much like this this entire topic distilled to its purest essence. Right. Um, I see people posting Tamagotchi pics on Twitter. They're like Game Boy Advance games now. Like even in the li- like little egg form, they've got really sharp screens, all these colors. It's like that was that's so advanced. Well, actually, Bandai was making a bunch of Game Boy Tamagotchi games. Yeah, that's the, right. In the nineties, they never came to the U.S. Nana Ansha made a ton of. Did they? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, they did it. Yeah. Were those Nana Ansha too, right? Or they just did the PlayStation Tamagotchi collections uh, or I, whatever? I'm gonna assume that they did those. Later. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so at the other at the other end of the spectrum, you had Romania two hundred three, yeah. um, which was very much again that sort of Hello Pac Man style, where it exactly. was, you were kind of voyeuristically looking into a person's life. I think it was inspired by webcams. Like that was actually kind of ahead of its time. Yeah. It's like uh, you know Metal Gear Solid two levels of like you're you're a little <laughs> you're a little early here with your with your talks about yeah. technology. But um, so yeah. the, the idea was to make someone's life better, basically. Yeah. Uh, from Sega, uh, Dreamcast, and PS2. Uh, yeah, it also has a weird interface, much like uh, Pac-Man 2 and some of the other games. Like it has, you, know, you direct them with like it looks like a ping pong ball. Basically, it's like a ping pong ball based interface where you just like toss this ball to them, and maybe they'll maybe they'll pay attention to it or not. That's a lot nicer than the slingshot they give you in Pac-Man 2. <laughs> right, yeah, it's that's, like hey, Pac-Man, <laughs> slingshot shoot a rock at his head. Yeah, yeah why does God hate me? <laughs> yeah, but uh, basically, you're just. Uh, uh, what managing this life with this uh, young man in his small apartment? And, uh, sometimes you know, you'll see him come in with new friends or a girlfriend or something like that. And, and there's ups and downs in it, but uh, it was it was it was pretty cool. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it the Japanese version of The Sims, but more in like a, a, a popularity standpoint because hmm. it did get a lot of uh, clout when it came cool. out. Oh, no idea. A lot of appreciation. Uh, so last hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still relatively because certainly not as huge as The Sims. But well, it's kind of a cult game now. And then uh, finally, in two thousand, was Boku no Natsu Yasumi, which I—that's why you're here, right? Just, just, Ray, just start go. talking. Just go. <laughs> We're that's, gonna sit back and let you go. Well, I mean, which issue of, of Scroll is this? In ten. Okay. Uh, so I mean, yeah. First of all, you guys can go ahead and start singing questions if you want, because I have explained this game so many times now <laughs> on podcasts. And what, what does and Boku stuff. mean? Yeah. is that like Goku? Ray is really angry. I think he's leaving. No. I'm sorry, Ray. I know what Boku he's means. I'm a weeaboo, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, <sighs> yeah. Actually, we've we've talked about those on Retronauts, haven't we? Maybe we don't need to go yeah, over it again. I mean, I talked about it on Eight Fours podcast when I was in Japan for the magazine, and I've done it on uh, other podcasts, and of course, written it for different places for a few times. So now. let's see if I can do this. Okay, right. yeah, yeah, that's <clears> what we, we should do. Yeah. <laughs> see if you All remember. Right. So you play as a kid named Boku. Yeah. Even though that just means me, so it's you. Mm-hmm. It's you. You are Boku, or I am Boku. Something. We're all made of Boku. Boku is me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's like Kukukuchu. Uh, and um, you're a kid, it's the summertime, you go on vacation to visit your aunt, I think, in the countryside, the Japanese countryside, and it basically just follows you through a few months of the summer. And you're kind of given free reign to do what you want, collect bugs, meet up with friends, go out into the woods, that kind of stuff. And there's a little bit of a story to it, and, and you know, at the end you go home and it's poignant because you're going to miss your friends. That's all I got. You know, you're mostly on point. Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, glad that I was paying attention. Some key things I want to mention. <laughs> uh, first of all, this is the way to do it. Get it wrong and then let it go. Yeah. Well, I mean, how else are we going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, takes place in the mid 70s, uh, mid 80s in the fourth game. Uh, there are four games. Um, go to aunt and uncle's house and they have uh, their own kids, your cousins, sometimes two daughters, two boys, daughter and a boy. Um, takes place during one month in summer vacation, August, because it's kind of how it works in Japan. It's oh, one cool. month, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're you're just you're from. I mean, Boku's from the city, so he gets basically shuttled off to his aunt and uncle's house because uh, 
at least in the first game, it's because his, his mom's about to have a new kid, and they just kind of want to get him out of the picture for a while. <laughs> so it also yeah, becomes this opportunity to like spend uh, summer vacation in an unfamiliar place uh, around all this nature, because uh, they're out in the countryside, of course, or on an island. And uh, yeah, you do just basically... It can do whatever you want in, in, in any day, but there is a basic plot. Uh, you can trigger certain events and stuff and sort of uh, build up uh, unboring summer days. Because you also write in a diary, draw in a diary every day as well. And so you can have really uh, eventful days or not so eventful days. It depends on how much you do each day. Um, what else? Um, but yeah, I think the main thing is that it is very much an adventure. It is that does have a plot to it, and uh, you do meet uh, new people, new friends. And it, first of all, it's just, I mean, it's gorgeous because it uses these painted uh, backgrounds. Uh, I would say pre rendered, but it's <laughs> the same thing. But I mean, it does have uh, tank controls, for instance. Hmm. Uh, but they're, they're gorgeous, gorgeous backgrounds in, in, in every game because they're all, all places based on real parts of Japan, but kind of not the same name, you know, sort of like how the Yakuza games take place in. It's not exactly named after the real place. Um, they're just lovely, and you can go around and work again. You can fish, you, go, you can swim, and then from the second one on. And it is just about this nostalgic recollection from this uh, man who I guess is in the mid 30s, just remembering this uh, important <laughs> uh, vacation that he had. Kind of kid. wonder years ish. Right. And, uh, wonder bump. Yeah, and uh, at least in the first game, it has different endings. Uh, or at least different, yeah, different post-credit sequences where you get to see how you ended up as an adult, uh, depending on how how great your summer went. Wow! So it all hinged on that. Yeah, uh, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, and I, I think maybe it's it's worth mentioning that not to interrupt, but no, but um, aside from maybe little computer people, this is the the one game on the list that is the work of a singular person. I mean. Obviously, lots of people worked on it, but it's very much the creative vision of uh, one guy. Yeah. yeah. Kazayabe was the guy who had the vision for this. And uh, you know, he, he had been around the game industry before. He started at NMK, and they made a lot of games for Jellico, for instance. He just sort of stuck around and, you know, going from these contract companies. And he finally started his own studio and just started, you know, with the help of his contacts, sort of got through to Sony and pitched this idea of the summer vacation game. Uh, turned out he was like the third person to pitch such an idea, <laughs> but uh, because of that, they just decided to pick his because hey, people seem to be <laughs> making this idea a lot, so let's just go with these guys. And uh, yeah, they they just made it as to their standards, <laughs> and uh, yeah, went on for three more games after that: uh, PS2, PS3, and PSP. And um, from there, we got to Attack of the Friday Monsters, mm-hmm. created by or know, produced by the same guy. Right, yeah. Abe, um, which actually came out in the U.S. Yeah, which is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> uh, but it was part of the Level 5 Guild collection, so, and, you know, the fact that they were uh, tapping these uh, specific creators to create these sorts of small form games for a 3DS eShop, uh, you know, it just sort of blended well to that, because they were all diff- very different games from one another. And, I mean... Uh, Attack of the Friday Monsters is not... I wouldn't call it so much of a slow-life game as much as uh, mm. My Summer Vacation is. Because, for one thing, it's like three hours long. But uh, it's it, it is even the tone of it is a lot uh, more energetic than those other games. I mean, the kids 
and a lot of the dialogue is just punctuated with a lot of punctuation marks and exclamation marks. You know. And uh, you know, people are screaming a lot about what's going on in this town because it mm-hmm. does also have that fantasy element of these uh, these monsters sort of appearing uh, every week. And then there's a hero who comes and fights them, and it's in real, and they're huge and all that stuff. And you sort of have to find out the mystery behind that, you know, through a couple of hours. But, I mean, it, it is similar in that it takes place in the 70s and it has many similar controls, similar looking characters and similar looking backgrounds and all that. So I understand why people bring it up. And it is certainly, uh, it's a good one, much like the My Summer Vacation games. And I, I was very glad that it came out in English and that people liked it. I think it was really just one of the better liked uh, of the Guild games. Yeah, well. that got a lot of attention. Crimson Shroud were, were definitely the best right. of the, the collection. Yeah. That that shocked me and really just made me happy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had been you know talking about this game ever since it... I mean, my summer vacation I had been talking about since it came out. And so I wanted something in English. I don't know what, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm glad it was this. Yeah, the one complaint I had about real complaint I had about Attack of the Friday Monsters was the collection element, which I thought was really distracting. Yeah, the card uh, game thing. Yeah, well. like that That would just, yeah. it really kind of took me out of the the, the experience, mm-hmm. which was a, a little bit of a disappointment. But I, I, I really enjoyed it besides that. Yeah, And I especially liked sort of the, I guess sort of the historical perspective on the evolution of Tokyo that it provided. That was very yeah. much a, a background element. But, you know, looking out, you could see where they were, erecting uh, skyscrapers in Shinjuku mm-hmm. and uh, it, it kind of puts you into this part of, of, of history where Japan was really kind of coming into its own as this, uh, you know, a cultural and economic superpower in the world. Right. Um, and maybe most people don't care about that, but to me it was, it was interesting just because it's something you don't really see. Like, I guess when we talk about Japan in terms of video games, it was always just like space invaders. And then, you know, like Nintendo, everything yeah. was always it was always big, but but it really wasn't. Like right. the, the 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 culture was kind of coming to its own um, in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, and I think you know, uh, sort of related to that, I think one of the things that makes the my summer vacation game so timeless is that because they're set way out from the city and stuff, like they are kind of timeless, and they're still, you know, despite the fact that they take place forty, thirty years ago, I mean, they still look great. I mean, it's all basically the countryside. I mean, that can be anywhere now. And uh, just you know, the fact that you can sort of experience that. Uh, I mean, that's also helped by the fact that, you know, Japan sort of hangs on to, to traditions. And they keep a lot of things around, you know, and you can still go to the, uh, the Obon Festival, for example, in, in the fourth game and still have this little per- local village parade going on. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll still go on. That happened in, in that game as well. You get to experience these sort of things that are still around in Japan in some respect. So we're actually kind of... Uh running a little longer than I did. Yeah, I think we should... Uh, um, we should, we should yeah. probably wrap this up. But I, I think we can probably agree that 2000 was sort of the, the watershed for this style of game. And, you know, there have been a lot of other games in the style since then, probably more than, than came before it, just because video games have, you know, especially in recent years, become really diverse. And there are a lot of games that, you know, aren't necessarily AAA blockbuster levels. But that's, you know, that, that sort of lower tier video games is exactly where you would find this style of game. Uh, aside from The Sims and Animal Crossing, none of them have ever been really 
huge hits. Um, uh, you know, kind of the, the games that I had, had highlighted to pinpoint uh, in the past decade or so are Viva Pinata by uh, Rare and Microsoft, uh, Spore, which was meant to be like the ultimate video game um, <laughs> resulting from, you know, Will Wright and The Sims, but didn't quite turn out that way. Africa, the um, PlayStation 3 sort of yeah. safari photography adventure. It's kind of a cousin to Aquanauts all the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tomodachi Life, and then uh, to a lesser degree, Fantasy Life, depending on how you play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then the other games borrow these elements, like Persona, definitely. Mm-hmm. You live yeah, every day, four. and you get yeah. jobs, and you yeah. build relationships. Yeah, Summer vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Lesser, uh, Danganronpa, same thing. It's like it's like a school life simulator, so every day something new happens, you go on dates, you build up your characteristics, things oh, like that. that about Dungan, yeah. Danganronpa. Yep. I really need to play those It games. steals from a lot of things, but uh, it does it in a good way. Yeah, the, the kind of the thing, thinking about borrowing elements from it, when we were talking about this, I, I kept thinking about uh, Steambot Chronicles, ah. uh, which is like an, a third-person adventure game where sometimes, if you want, you can go and do these kind of slow-life aspects. You can be a bad guy if you want. Yeah, yeah that's what the, the title mm-hmm. song, uh, title Total. screen. Yeah. I like yeah. that. A relaxing, non-linear adventure. <laughs> it's us. You can play an instrument, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so really, I guess 2000 was sort of the purest iteration of these this, this style of game. And since then, you've had stuff like, um, you know, Room Factory, which takes the Harvest Moon concept and pulls it back more into the RPG style. Mm-hmm. Fantasy Life is the same way, mm-hmm. where you can play it as an RPG adventure, but you can also play it as a non-violent game. Nick Maragos, uh, who's been on the podcast a few times, wrote a really great feature a few months ago about how he... Uh, played fantasy life and beat the game without killing anything, which is it took some effort. But the fact is, you know, like he pointed out places where the game was conspicuously designed around the fact that, or around the the um, possibility of taking a nonviolent approach, like where the designers actually set things up in a specific way where it made it possible. Yeah, cool. I like that a lot. Um, I'd even argue, like, uh, you know, the later Elder Scrolls games are kind of like that. Slow life in a fantasy medieval-based world, except for sometimes there's a dragon flying around. So mm-hmm. just keep away from those. But, I mean, you can walk around the town and just see people going about their day. Yeah, I mean, even even Grand Theft Auto, if you right. want to put it that way, or Shenmue. Yeah, um, I was just thinking specifically about being in this more organically natural environment than just, right. you know, a city. Right, right. So. Yeah, the thing about Elder Scrolls is that... It, um, it does make everything very checklisty. Yeah. So, like, you could live a life where you just, you know, shop yeah. and well, be a yeah. blacksmith, but really what you're going to do is sit at the blacksmith uh, crafting area for a couple of hours and just build up your, your crafting sure. level to 100 so that you can forge the best armor. Yeah. But, I mean, also you can just explore if you want. I mean, just turn mm-hmm. the difficulty down like I do. And just <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, but, I've barely seen any of the story. I just mm-hmm. go around and try to get all the map points. Exactly. Yeah. So, any any final thoughts on slow living in video games? Minecraft. True. I yeah. yeah Minecraft, okay. I, I do for the same thing. But I don't want to keep us going any longer. No, but yeah. I, I think Minecraft can be played like that. You can turn off the monsters, just do whatever a, you want. It does have a certain beauty to it. And and I suppose if you really want to put it that way, a lot of MMOs where you can, uh, you know, eschew the the combat roles and, and uh, just kind of enjoy. You know, being around people and yeah. 
Uh, but boy, talk about a checklist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That game is nothing but a checklist. And, and, and maybe that's inevitable. Like, you know, we kind of did the slow life thing, and now people are saying, oh, that's great. Let's pull some elements of that, yeah. but put it into our video games and make it video gamey. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Is the I think the fact that this is so inclusively defined on this podcast, where like so many things can kind of fit into this, yep. um, is representative of the fact that it's become like RPG elements or like roguelike elements or something like that, where it is a flavor that you can add to a game that doesn't you know necessarily have anything to do with that at its core. It's like MSG. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the MSG of video games. The, it's uh, the sixth mm, flavor or whatever. Yeah, the yeah. fifth flavor? Umami. I don't know. Umami. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so I guess that's pretty much all we have time to talk about. That that uh, actually filled up more of a podcast than I had expected or feared. So mm-hmm. good job, us. Slow Chase, podcast. I, I hope that you were satisfied with our discussion, even though we did look up Wikipedia on the air once or twice to fact check. I'm very sorry about that. Um, anyway, I, I think we could probably talk about this a lot longer, but we have... Lives to lead, slow lives to lead. So I, we'll go about that. So, Gary, Ray, especially, mm-hmm. and Bob, I guess. Thanks for I can guess. <laughs> You're always here. You need to work on building your charisma points, Jeremy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot my checklist at home. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Chase, whoever you are, for supporting Retronauts. Um, thanks, everyone out there, for listening. Uh, our usual spiel, spiel, however you say it. Uh, we are Retronauts, retronauts.com. You can hear us on usgamer.net. Uh, there are friends and partners, and also our two of, two of us are employed there. It's very important. Um, we are supported by Patreon, Patreon, however you want to say it, patreon.com slash retronauts. Uh, your money allows us to rent out cool studio facilities and use software and stuff like that that we need to make the podcast. So please keep supporting us and we'll send you cool stuff. Um, let's see. You can hear us on Twitter. Yes. Twitter at Retronauts and Tumblr at Retronauts and YouTube at Retronauts and SoundCloud and Libsyn. And what else am I forgetting, Bob? Uh, I think you've got it all. Oh my God. Tumblr? Tumblr? I said Tumblr. Okay, we're good. Our, uh, Tinder? No. Nope. You can't Tinder. date us yet. <laughs> can't date Retronauts. Um, yet. And yet. And I think that's about it. So thanks once again for listening. Um, We'll be back next week with a Retronauts Micro and the week after with a Retronauts Retronauts. Uh, Until then, I'm Jeremy Parrish, and uh, that's all.